On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this morning we want to get back to our study in the book of James. And this, it was interrupted by a number of things, not the least of which was my being off for surgery and then a series of messages that I did that the Lord put on my heart while I was off. But we want to get back to our study in the book of James this morning. And you'll remember that this, this powerful little epistle is, is tough. It's hard-hitting. In fact, one man said after a few studies in James that James comes out swinging and he doesn't stop. And that's true. It's hard hitting. Sometimes it's very uncomfortable because James steps all over our toes. But it's also very practical. And it's warmly pastoral. I mean, it's coming from the heart of Pastor James. And in light of the fact that it's been a number of months since we were in James, I thought it would be helpful this morning if we took time to review the chapters and verses we've covered so far, just to refresh our memories and to get us up and running again. And so we will, because of the, the length of the passage we're going to cover this morning, we'll, we'll kind of read it as we go, but we're not going to read every passage. This is just going to be a kind of a, a review. Like J. Vernon McGee said, we're going to get on the Bible bus this morning and travel through this. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. You'll remember, of course, that James, the half-brother of our Lord and, and the pastor and leader of the church in Jerusalem, wrote this letter to Jewish believers who had fled to Judea and Samaria and then to Jewish communities around the Mediterranean in response to persecution against the church. And then word got back to James that these Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ were experiencing severe trials. I mean, they were suffering. Uh, they were suffering rejection, persecution, poverty, adversity, affliction from without, and, and conflicts within. And James' pastor's heart went out to them. I mean, he loved these believers. Many of them had, were under his ministry in Jerusalem before they fled, and, and he wanted to help them. He wanted, to, he wanted them to be able to live out their faith in the crucible of life and in all of their trials, and he wanted to equip them to do this. So after his greeting in verse 1, he began his letter in verses 2 and 4 of chapter 1 by addressing the issue of the Christian and trials. And James first dealt with the believer's proper response to trials. He said, when we meet trials of various kinds, we're to count it all joy. It's like, really, James? That's what he said, we're to count it all joy. And the reason believers should respond with an attitude of joy when faced with various trials, as we learn, is that we know from God's Word and from our own experience as well that trials are a means of testing through which God works to purify, strengthen, and perfect our faith and, and to bring us to spiritual maturity, which is demonstrated by a likeness to Christ in every part of our character. So James says that trials test our faith, and, and what comes out of that is steadfastness. But that's not an end. No steadfastness produces maturity. That, that's verse 4 in chapter 1. And there are some things that we learn by reading. Others we, we learn through preaching and teaching. But there are some things that we can only learn through fiery trials that test our faith. 
in our faith, our character, our relationships, our service, our conversations are shaped by trials and our proper biblical response to them. And so the question for us this morning is, how are we responding to the trials which we may find ourselves in? And to be honest and and realistic, it's not always easy to have this attitude of joy as much as we may want to, right? But it all sounds easy, but the truth is when you're in the midst of a trial, it's hard to understand what's going on and, and to believe it's for your benefit because it all seems unreal and idealistic. I mean, it's a whole lot easier to say to someone else, count it all joy, when you're not the one right in the middle of a fiery trial. But James knew the nature of trials, and and he knew that having an attitude of joy in the midst of them and not rebelling against the experience is much easier to say and much easier to write and much easier to think about than it is to actually do. He knew that it takes perspective, and this requires wisdom. We need God's wisdom in order to approach our trials properly And that's what James addressed in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And the wisdom James speaks of is not earthly wisdom gained by experience. It's not common sense. It's not intelligence and academic prowess or the mere acquisition of knowledge. Rather, it is practical. And it's been called skill in living. And in the context of James 1, this wisdom is practical insight from God that enables us to take biblical truth, spiritual truth, and to apply it to the details of our everyday life or to a specific problem or issue. And so by wisdom, James means the God-given ability to see our circumstances, here specifically our trials, from his perspective, and the practical insight to take appropriate actions, to respond properly with joy and live obediently in the midst of our trials for our growth and maturity and for God's glory. And so when we're hit with trial after trial in this life, as God purifies, strengthens, and perfects our faith to bring us to maturity, When God brings these things in our lives and we're struggling to get a grip on what's going on, when all we feel is pain and it's grievous for the moment and and we're wondering what to do and how to respond, we need wisdom from God. We need wisdom from God so that instead of asking, why is this happening to me, we ask, how can I understand this trial from your perspective, Lord? How can I navigate through this storm in such a way as to bring you glory? Lord, give me wisdom so I know how best to respond in this trial so that it will be a means of further growth and maturity. We need wisdom to do this, but not earthly wisdom, the wisdom from above. And so James tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Why? Who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. You see, the problem of lacking wisdom is not on God's part because he is more than willing and ready to give us wisdom. The problem is on our part. You see, as Christians, we often try to handle trials by human reasoning, trusting in our own rational resources. 
And part of the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of a Christian is to wean us away from trusting in our own resources and to make us look away from ourselves to Christ. Asking Him for the wisdom we lack. And James says God is not only the God who gives wisdom, He gives generously. And James tells us He gives without reproach. And so James tells us we're to ask God for wisdom. He also tells us how to ask. We're to ask in faith, not doubting. Look at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And so James compares the doubting believer to the rising and falling, the, the heaving of the sea, you know, up one minute, down the next, just being tossed back and forth, to and fro. And this kind of instability is evidence of immaturity, spiritual immaturity, because spiritual instability and immaturity go together. And James says, for that person, in verse 7, for that person, the doubter, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, in saying that the doubter is a double-minded man, James is not referring there to someone who wrestles with doubt as we all do from time to time. But rather, he is referring to the person with two minds. In other words, a person with a divided loyalty. Someone who's not really committed to following the wisdom God provides. It's it's the person who, you know, they want to weigh their options. They may follow their own wisdom or... They may follow the wisdom of God. It just depends on if they like what he says. James also is not teaching that only perfect, doubtless, confident prayers will be answered. Rather, what he is saying is that we had better not ask for wisdom from God unless we are willing to follow the wisdom that he provides because God will not cast his pearls before swine. In other words, he's not going to give wisdom to those who are not committed to follow it. So the point James wants to get across to us is that when we're in a trial, if we lack wisdom, which we all do, Divine wisdom is available to the Christian. It's available to you and I as we face life's trials. We simply need to ask our Heavenly Father for it. Because He promises to give wisdom to those who ask. And He's pleased to give wisdom. And and He gives generously to all without reproach. In other words, without finding fault. So James says what the Christian needs in order to rejoice in trials is wisdom. And then in verses 9 to 12, James gives an illustration of this in practice, and he does so by speaking about poverty and riches, which are commonly experienced trials in which believers need God's wisdom to see their trial from God's eternal perspective and the practical insight to respond properly. And in verse 9, James dealt with the low brother, meaning the poor brother. For the poor believer, poverty is a test. It's a trial. But James instructs the lowly brother to look beyond his difficult earthly circumstances and his trials and and to boast, that is, to rejoice in the high exalted position that he has in Christ Jesus and all of the, the countless spiritual riches and blessings that position brings. 
And then in verses 10 to 11, James turned to the rich brother and, and the other side of the principle. Though we don't think of it in this, in this way, for the rich brother, prosperity is a test. It's a trial. Just as a materially poor believer should boast in his spiritual riches, James commands the rich brother to boast or to rejoice in his humiliation or in his low position. That is, he should boast in the fact that he's no different than the poor brother and and that he too is nothing more than a hell-deserving sinner entirely dependent upon the mercy of God for his salvation and for any other blessings of eternal value. The rich brother is to boast in God and what God has done for him in and through Jesus Christ, not in his wealth or, or his material possessions, because those things will all pass away just like the rich man himself. Instead of boasting in his earthly position and possession, the rich believer is to boast in his position in Christ Jesus just like the poor brother, because they were equally members of the family of God and the body of Christ. And this both the poor and rich brothers could do if they ask for wisdom from God in faith, believing, not being double-minded, and the Lord would give generously to them without reproach. And then in verse 12, James spoke of the blessing for those who remain steadfast in trials. He said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test. James says, when we have stood the test, literally passed the test. In other words, when we have persevered in our trials, when our faith has been tested and and proven genuine, it's been purified and strengthened by trials, James says, this man, this believer, in the rest of verse 12, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When the believer is promised, he will receive the crown of life. And the future tense points to something certain that lies ahead of the believer. It is that certainty that that often becomes the believer's greatest motivation to keep pressing forward. And James tells us this crown of life has been promised not on the basis of performance, but on the basis of relationship to God. It's given to those who love him who love him. You see, love for Christ does not exempt us from trials, but it does motivate us to persevere under trials. I mean, those who truly love the Lord will persevere, and and those who persevere, these outward trials are guaranteed inner joy and, and happiness in this life and the crown of life in the next. But, Sadly, trials do not always produce steadfastness and maturity. When facing trials, some doubt God's goodness and turn away from Him. Instead of, of growing deeper in faith and love so that they actually long for the crown of life, they actually begin to blame God for their troubles. And so in verses 13 to 15, James turned from dealing with trials, which all Christians experience, to another kind of trouble which is more subtle and more difficult to handle, that of temptation. You see, evidently, some of those James was writing to were not responding properly in the trials they were called on to endure. 
And the easy answer for their unbelief and their sinful attitudes and actions brought to the surface by their trials was, it's God's fault. It's God's fault. You know, he had placed them in the circumstances which, which were just simply too much for them. And so God was to blame. And so they were blaming God for their sin. But James confronts this there in verse 13 by saying, no, God is not to blame. Temptation does not come from him. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God is not able to be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. He's holy. God is never the author of temptation or evil, never. Then where does temptation come from? Oh, the ultimate cause, the ultimate blame lies a lot closer to home. The root problem is our own evil. The problem with temptation lies in the nature of man, not the nature of God. Look at verse 14. James says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. I mean, James is crystal clear. The source of temptation is not God or even the devil. We are lured and enticed by our own sinful desires, our, our own lusts. I mean, we are accountable and no one else. I mean, we cannot put the blame for our sins on anyone but ourselves. And then in verse 15, James addressed the process of temptation and the process of temptation, and he did so in terms of the birth of a baby. Look at verse 15. He said, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth what? Death. So think of sin that way. It's conceived in your own heart, and then it goes to your mind where you play it out, and then it's given a place in your will, and at the right place, at the right time, it is born, and it is born a killer. Because all kinds of deadly things come from sin. And so the process is desire, sin, and death. And that's why we cannot play around with temptation. Because sinful desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin brings forth death. But what does death mean in light of the fact that James is speaking to believers? Because through faith in Jesus Christ, all believers are saved from spiritual and eternal death. So what does this mean? Well, for the believer, sin may lead to death in this way. It may lead to the death of your spiritual ministry. It may lead to the death of relationships. It may lead to the death of a marriage and family. It may lead to the death of a partnership. One commentator suggested it means a death-like existence for the believer who continually lives in sin. It could also mean literal physical death. Because we know from 1 Corinthians 11 that if a believer persists in sin, a God could take him home early. So that's the process. Evil desire acted upon results in sin, which results in death. And then James said, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's verse 16. 
Christians are not to make the mistake of blaming God rather than themselves for their sin and thinking their sin has no consequences. And so James is saying, look, stop blaming other people or circumstances. Stop blaming Satan for your temptations and sin. But above all, do not blame God. He's saying, take full responsibility yourselves. You know, realize your enemy, your, uh, your fallenness, your lust, your weaknesses, your rationalizations, and your sins are from within and have to be dealt with from within. And we have to take responsibility for our sins, and then what do we do? We take them to God. We first run to the one who promises forgiveness of sin made possible by the substitutionary atoning death of Christ. Well, at this point in the book, having said quite a bit about trials, testings, and temptation, which are pretty heavy subjects, James knew that his readers needed a little word of encouragement. And so after pointing out that God does not tempt us and is not the source of anything evil, in verses 16 to 18 of chapter 1, James turned to the subject of the goodness of God. We sang about it this morning. I mean, James knew that doubting God's goodness is as old as the human race. When trials and difficulties come, when sickness comes, a loved one dies, friends betray us or fail us, when, when conflict comes, we can be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. You know, we start thinking, well, if God is so good, you know, why are we going through this? Or in the absence of some blessing, we can be tempted to think, well, if God is good, why doesn't he bless us with this thing or, or that thing? But James doesn't ever want us to doubt God's goodness. Rather, he wants us to think of the greatness of God and the goodness of God. He, he wants us to consider that all that we have, all the blessings, of, he wants us, to, wants us to consider all that we have. All the blessings of the goodness of God. And every one of us here this morning, every believer who's here this morning can testify to God's goodness and his love in our lives. Can't we? And so after an affectionate warning in verse 16 about not being deceived, James told us three things about the goodness of God. In verse 17, he said, God is the source of all that is good. Second, that God is the unchanging source of all that is good. And then in verse 18, he said that God is the source of the supreme act of goodness, which would be the goodness of salvation. I mean, every believer was once in the spiritual graveyard. In other words, dead in trespasses and sins. But the word of God came, the gospel came and brought spiritual life. James said it this way in verse 18. Of his own will, speaking of God, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so of his own will, God brought us forth. That is, he caused us to be born again. And we were given new spiritual life through the instrumentality of the living and abiding word of God. And, and James simply, simply says it was through the word of truth. And then this mention of the word of God and their regeneration, well, that turned James' thoughts to urging them to live according to the word. And this really is the heart of this epistle. 
His point is, now that you've been born again by the transforming power of God's Word, you must live according to the Word. You know, allowing it to continue its divine work in and through your lives. But this doesn't happen automatically apart from the believer's own sincere determination and effort. There's no such thing as, uh, you know, uh, just let go and let God. No, no. And so in verses 19 to 21, James tells us it begins with humbly receiving God's word. But first he says in verse 19, we need to be quick to listen to the word of God and slow to speak and slow to anger. In other words, as we learned, you know, be humble as you hear the word of God. Don't come with your defenses up, which leads to anger and resistance to the word and, and does not produce the righteousness of God. And then in verse 21, James says that before we can receive the word, we must confess our sins. He tells us we're, we're to put aside all filthiness and wickedness that remains in our lives that, that we're aware of. And so, first of all, sin must be put off. And then having put off sin, the positive duty is to receive with meekness the implanted word. We're to receive the word of God with meekness or humility, which is the opposite of being quick to speak and quick to be angry. The word receive carries with it a sense of urgency, and it denotes more than, than just the act of acceptance. No, it's the idea of a warm and, and very eager welcome. And the word meekness tells, it, tells us that we're to come to the word with a soft, gentle, teachable disposition, recognizing the authority of God's word and submitting to it. So what we're speaking of is a humble attitude that bows to the authority of the Lord spoken through his word. I mean, it's the willingness to follow after whatever he commands. I mean, James is telling us of the necessity to continually open our hearts to the Word of God and, and, and to welcome it, to receive more and more of it with an eager readiness to learn and, and then with a genuine desire to bring every area of our lives, every area of our lives, under His control, under its, the Word of God's direction and control. And there should be no resistance on our part to anything that God is saying to us. We must place ourselves under the implanted word, open ourselves up to it, listen carefully to it, and receive it into our lives so that it can guide us and keep us from sin and shape us and mold us more and more into the image and the likeness of Christ. And the reason we should do this, James says, is because it's able to save your souls. In other words, now, the Word of God is the source of salvation, past, present, and future. It's the source of our justification, sanctification, glorification. It's the Word that has delivered us from the penalty of sin. It continually delivers us from the power of sin. And it continually conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so James calls on the Christian to humbly receive the truth of God's Word. But it doesn't stop there. Oh, no. Now, secondly, it must be heard and obeyed. And that means it must be acted upon. We must actually 
do God's word if it's going to be effective in our lives. And this is what James dealt with in verses 22 to 27 of chapter 1. And so having been born again through the word, verse 18, and having humbly received the word, verses 19 to 21, James says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. You see, the real living faith to which believers have been born through the word of truth is a faith that both humbly hears what God says and then does it with a willing heart. It's a faith we must put into practice in our daily lives. Faith isn't just something merely theological and theoretical. It's practical. And James is telling us that Christians are to be people whose very lives are dedicated not only to hearing God's word, but to obeying it. And the tense it's written in indicates this is a continuing duty. In other words, this is a lifelong process. We'll never reach a point where it's okay to slack up in our obedience. We we must never stop. We, We must continually be doers of the word. I mean, the dominant theme of the book of James is the fact that we must be doers of the Word of God. Why? Well, because a genuine faith must be and will be evident in the life. Because genuine faith, saving faith, is an active faith. It's an obedient faith. It's a faith that works practically in one's life. It's a faith that affects the way that we live. It's a faith that behaves in a certain way. And James says the man who only hears the word and does not do it is self-deceived. Deceived. In fact, James says in verse 23, he's like the man who looks into the mirror, sees what's wrong but does nothing about it. Instead, he just goes away and, and forgets what he saw. So his looking was useless because the word had no lasting or abiding influence on him, except that the spiritual consequences are immeasurably worse than simply forgetting what you look like. But in contrast to the one who hears and, and does not do is the man in verse 25 who James says looks intently into the Word of God. In other words, he, he, he gives careful attention to the Scriptures, the, the perfect law of freedom, and, and he perseveres. He continues to do so. I mean, this man thinks deeply. He obeys willingly, responds positively, and seeks to live by the principles of God's Word. In other words, he's a doer who acts. And he keeps looking and doing, looking and doing. Not perfectly, of course. None of us will be perfect this side of heaven. But he keeps looking and doing and looking and doing, not perfectly, but but that is the desire and the direction of his life. And as a result, James says at the end of verse 25, he will be blessed in his doing. Blessed. Hearing the word and not obeying it, not doing it, leads to deception. There's a lot of deceived people occupying seats in churches today. Hearing the word and not obeying it, not doing it, leads to deception. But hearing the word and doing it leads to blessing. That's what it says. And then in verses 26 and 27, James 
He wanted to make clear that being a doer of the word is not someone who's just simply involved in religious activity. There's a lot of people involved in a lot of religious activity that are no more saved than a man in the moon. I mean, true religion, that is biblical Christianity, begins with a heart that's been transformed by the power of the gospel and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And that inner transformation, that new life in Christ, then expresses itself in outward behavior that is consistent with the genuine faith. It'll be manifested outwardly by living in obedience to God's word, reflected, among other ways, by keeping a tight rein on your tongue by sacrificial love and compassion in meeting the needs of others, and by personal purity and uncompromising moral and spiritual stand in regard to the world. I mean, these are the things that mark the life of a true believer, a true doer of the word. And then when we came to chapter 2, James' emphasis on being doers of the word was further developed as he showed us in verses 1 to 7 that genuine faith does not show partiality. And so his specific command in the last section of chapter 1 to be doers of of the word is followed by a command now in chapter 2 to avoid showing partiality or, or personal favoritism. And we learned uh, what this is. It's the idea of, of making an instant superficial judgment or evaluation of a person's worth based on nothing but outward appearances, such as financial, social, and racial distinctions. And, and on that basis, then, giving them special honor, favor, and respect. Or conversely, neglecting or marginalizing them, treating them with disrespect. And James was particularly addressing the problem of showing partiality to the rich. But of course, his words apply to any sort of partiality or or favoritism based on external factors. And certainly there's nothing necessarily wrong with being rich, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with being poor. The problem James is addressing is the sinful behavior of those in the church toward these men. When the rich showed up at church, they were, being, they were being given the warmest welcome and the best seats in the place. While the poor Christians were ignored and disregarded. Hey, why don't you go sit back here in the back row, or better yet, go sit out in the lobby. And this matter of showing partiality is no small issue. I mean, it's something the Bible condemns in a number of ways. And James explained that partiality is wrong because it contradicts God's heart. Because God himself has chosen many of the poor for himself. Secondly, it is inconsistent with the Christian faith. And thirdly, it is also completely illogical. Because in showing partiality to the rich, they were favoring and flattering the very people who were oppressing and exploiting them. And remember, he's speaking in generalities. Certainly there were rich people in that day who didn't do these things. There were rich believers who were not guilty of these things. But generally speaking, it is the rich who oppress the poor. 
So James says this, this whole idea of showing the rich partiality is completely illogical because in doing that, you're favoring and flattering the very people who are oppressing you and exploiting you. Even worse, by showing partiality to the rich, they were aligning themselves with God's enemies, those who were blaspheming the very name of Christ, or as James puts it, the honorable name by which you were called. And by blaspheming his honorable and excellent name, they disgraced and discredited the Lord Jesus Christ. They offended his followers and they sinned against God. And so James is is really calling his readers back to their senses. I mean, he's basically saying, you realize who you're honoring and favoring? You know, why would you fall all over yourself to show favoritism to the worldly rich who are exploiting you, dragging you into court, and blaspheming the name of Jesus? And James' answer to this, do not show partiality. Don't do it, he's saying. And he couldn't be clearer. If there's one place where worldly distinctions have no place, it is in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, James addressed the fact that partiality is a violation of God's word. First of all, in verses 8 and 9, he said, in showing partiality, they were committing sin and they stood convicted. In other words, they stood exposed and reproved by the law of being transgressors. Because God's word in both the Old and New Testaments prohibits partiality. And the command to love your neighbor as yourself is violated every time anyone is discriminated against on the basis of their economic status, social class, their race, sex, etc., etc. And James' readers, to whom this applied, could not escape the verdict that they were transgressors. They had violated God's law. And then secondly, in verses 10 and 11, James wanted them to know that this is a very serious sin. I mean, we think of partiality, you know, showing favoritism as, oh, it's a little sin, you know, no big deal. We think, of it, we think it's a little sin like, like we do other sins that have, that have almost become respectable in the church. But James essentially says the category called little sins doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as a little sin in God's eyes. You know, if we were able to keep every law, every command, which we can't, but if we could, and we were to break just one law, just one command, just one time, no matter how seemingly insignificant we might think it is, James says we are accountable for and guilty of breaking all of it. And in the process, we offend the one who gives the law because our sin is first and foremost against the holy God of heaven. Now James is not saying that the man who commits one sin is guilty of committing every other sin. Nor is he saying that to break one part of the law is to break every other part of the law, nor that when a person breaks one law, it is then no worse to go out and break others. He's not, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying 
is that because the law of God is an, is an entity, it's a unity, even one sin, even the sin of partiality results in the whole law being broken. In other words, the law is like a chain. One broken link, and the whole chain is broken. Or like a tire. One puncture, and the whole tire is flat. James wants us to know one sin results in the whole law being broken. And you see, loved ones, this is the crushing truth that has to be faced by the unbeliever who is trying to cancel out his bad deeds by his good ones. This is why all men stand condemned before a holy God as lawbreakers, deserving of nothing but his eternal wrath and judgment. I mean, this is sinful man's condition apart from a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But James is speaking to believers. The lesson here is primarily to believers. So what's up with this? He wants us to know that as Christians, we're under obligation to obey all of God's word, all of his commands, every part of it. And to break it at one point is to be a lawbreaker. Why? As one man said, because what you're doing is defying the authority of God. You think you don't need to obey this over here? It's not that big of a deal? James says, no, it is a big deal. Because you're defying the very authority of God. You're defying the word of God. You're, you're denying full love and devotion to God. And you're saying, I will not love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength in that area. I will not submit to you in that area. I will not obey you in that area. I will violate that area. In other words, you're following your will rather than the will of your Lord and Master. And anybody who runs around selecting a few laws to obey like the Jews did and a few laws to disobey and hoping they can balance the whole thing out at the end is only fooling themselves. You see, the true heart of obedience acknowledges, Lord, I want to walk in obedience to your word. I want to walk according to your will and according to all of your commands. But Lord, I fail. But when you do fail, when you break the law, you, you see yourself as a transgressor. And then, so what do you do? First John 1 John 1.9, right? You run to Jesus for cleansing and forgiveness. That doesn't mean you can just go ahead and keep sinning in that way and just keep asking for forgiveness. You know, James' purpose here is to emphasize the sinfulness of, of this sin. Really the sinfulness of all sin, but, it, but specifically the sin of partiality. I mean, it may seem a small thing to us, but James is saying it's a sin of massive proportions that, that shatters the law of God and makes us transgressors. It's very serious. And that's his point. That's his point. And James backed up his teaching in verse 10 with an illustration in verse 11. He used two extreme examples of breaking God's law, adultery and murder. Look at verse 11. He said, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. And so a very simple and obvious illustration clinches the point. 
And James' point is that it would be utterly absurd for a murderer to claim that he had not broken the law because he had not committed adultery. Or for the adulterer to claim that he had not broken the law because he had not committed murder. No, the same lawgiver who prohibited adultery also prohibited murder. If you violate either of those commands, you're a transgressor of the law. And the fact that a murderer may not have also committed adultery will not excuse him before God. You see, you can't violate one law and keep the other and still be an obedient individual. All that matters is, did he commit murder? If so, he's guilty of breaking the law. You see, the keeping of some laws does not excuse a person for breaking others. You become a criminal by committing just one crime. You become a lawbreaker because you break just one law. And so this sin of partiality, like any other sin, is not to be taken lightly nor excused on the basis that it is not important. Because James wants us to know it is important. In fact, it's very serious. And James brings his discussion of partiality to a conclusion in verses 12 and 13, there in chapter 2, with a solemn warning for us to live in light of the fact that we will soon stand before Jesus Christ who will judge all of our works. Look at verses 12 and 13. He said, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, James is not saying we need to be merciful to others in order to earn mercy before God. You can't earn mercy. It's mercy because it can't be earned. If you could earn it or deserve it, it wouldn't be mercy. No, this text is saying the heart... Uh, the heart, which has been the object of divine mercy, will be merciful. That person will be merciful. In other words, you can tell who's received mercy from God by the way they show mercy to others. And if mercy is evident in someone's life, and clearly Christ, by his mercy, is dwelling within them. But on the other hand, if we do not extend mercy, we demonstrate that we have not received mercy, that Christ, by his mercy, is not dwelling within us. And James says that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But those who have been truly saved will give evidence of the merciful character of the God who saved them. And that evidence assures them that they truly have been saved and therefore have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. Why? Because mercy triumphs over judgment. And although not even the best Christian deserves to stand in God's presence, and although every Christian has continually fallen short of God's glory in his daily life, God's mercy will triumph over the judgment that would otherwise overwhelm his people. And so aren't you thankful that his mercies are new Every morning. Why are they new every morning? Because we need them every morning. And then in verses 14 to 26 of chapter 2, James continued to deal with the issue of being doers of the word and not hearers only, emphasizing the fact that genuine faith in our hearts will be evident in the fruit of our lives, that what we do reveals who we are. And this passage gives us a picture of a glorious gospel that is received by grace through faith. But this faith is not merely an intellectual belief. It's a faith that results in obedience to the commands of God, which results in good works. 
And certainly as Christians, we need to understand good works do not contribute any way to gaining or keeping our salvation. But they are evidence that we have in fact been saved, that we are in fact the redeemed of the Lord. They are not the root, they are the fruit. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It is always zealous to do good works. That's the point James is making. That true saving faith will result in and manifest itself by good works. And these verses force us to ask the penetrating question, if you say you believe, then why do you live, why do you behave like you do not? In verses 14 to 19, James converses with an imaginary person, a person who claims to have faith but has no works, a person who claims that you can separate faith from works. James says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This is a rhetorical question which expects a negative answer. So what good is it? It's of no good. It's not beneficial at all. But we have to pay careful attention to the exact wording here. Because the key to understanding this is the phrase, if someone says. If someone says. James does not say that this person actually has faith but not works. Rather, James tells us the person says he has faith. So here's a person who says that he has faith, but there's no works. And the question James asks is, can that faith save him? That faith refers to the faith James has just mentioned, a faith that someone professes to have, but it has no works. There's absolutely no evidence to validate their claim. Can that faith save him? And the expected answer is, well, no, of course not. So James is telling us it's possible to claim to have faith but not actually have it. It's possible to say that you have faith but not actually be saved. And in verses 15 to 17, James illustrated his point by comparing faith without works to words of compassion without any acts of compassion. He said in verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, James says, what good is that? Answer, it's not good at all, right? It is totally useless. In fact, it proves that his faith is empty. As James said in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? It's of no good. Can that faith then, a faith that someone claims to have, but has no works to validate the claim, save him? No. If there is no fruit, there's no faith. It's that simple. James says in verse 17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? What? Dead. So see, you can't blame this on me. This is James. 
Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by obedience, by action, by works, is dead. In other words, it is devoid of the life of God. There's no activity, no sign of life, no functioning beyond a mere profession. It's marked by empty confession and false compassion. But a genuine living faith is never by itself. Because saving faith inevitably shows up in good works. And James continued his dialogue with the imaginary objector who now claims that you can separate faith from works. Look at verse 18. But someone will say. I mean, James knew human nature. He knew somebody was going to say this. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. In other words, this person is saying, well, you have faith, I have works. You know, this Christian over here, he specializes in faith. This one over here, he specializes in works. You know, people are just different. Some are gifted with faith, some are gifted with works. They don't necessarily go together. It's possible to have one without the other. That's just the way things are. But James will have absolutely none of it. Look back at verse 18. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I mean, in what other way can you possibly demonstrate that your faith is genuine except by living the kind of life that proves it to be so? How can you show faith without works? The truth is you cannot show me your faith without works, without any practical evidence or outworking of it, because true faith always gives practical evidence. Faith is proved by a way of life. And that is why James says, I will show you my faith by my works. Because good works make faith visible. Good works demonstrate that faith is real. A person's claim to have faith is vindicated by a life of holiness and good works. So James' point is simply that you cannot separate true faith from works. They're inseparable. True living faith produces living action. In other words, real faith will result in genuine works because real faith, saving faith, is not a passive faith. It's an active faith. It's an obedient faith, a faith that works. It it won't be perfect obedience. But good works will be present. And conversely, faith without works is dead. It is useless. It is non-existent. And it can never save. And even if someone claims to believe in God, you know, orthodox theology is absolutely no guarantee that their faith is genuine. A correct belief system without works proves nothing. And James uses the faith of demons to illustrate this very point. Look at verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. I mean, it is good. He's not making light of the fact that you believe that God is one. God is one. For someone to believe that, you do well. But he said, even the demons believe that. And not only that, they shudder. It affects them emotionally. And James' point is that mere intellectual assent to the truth of God in Christ is not enough to save. 
You can know and believe important and true things about God and Christ and the Bible and salvation and still not be a Christian. You could be what one old Puritan called an almost Christian. You see, there is an eternal difference between an intellectual assent to those truths and actually embracing them. I mean, faith involves the willful embracing of those truths and obedience to those truths. Intellectual belief in the truth without obedience to Christ is a worthless kind of belief. It's no different than that possessed by demons. Remember, demons are very orthodox in their faith. They are. They're more orthodox than some professed Christians because they know that all these things are true. They could sign the statement of faith in any evangelical church because they believe those things. They're just not saved. They never can be. And in verse 20, James reiterated the point he just made. He said, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So he's saying, you know, you foolish person. You want evidence that faith without works is useless. And then in verses 21 to 26, James contrasts what he's just described as dead faith with a living faith. You know, a non-saving faith with saving faith, an unproductive faith with a productive faith. And in doing so, he uses two examples from the Old Testament, two people from the extreme opposite ends of the social and spiritual spectrum. The first is Abraham, patriarch and father of the Hebrew people. Second is Rahab, who was a Gentile prostitute. And both extremes demonstrate the reality that a living faith is an active faith. Both of them were heroes of the faith. You can read about them in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. They had a faith that was demonstrated by their courage and their actions. Abraham believed God and consequently he was willing to sacrifice his son. Rahab believed God and consequently she was was willing to risk it all when she hid the, the Israeli spies. I mean, James' point is that Abraham and Rahab showed their faith by what they did. Their works were the evidence of their justification because faith bears fruit. Faith is shown by its activity. Faith isn't something you merely talk about. True saving faith will result in and manifest itself by works. And then in chapter 3, i got to move through this. Then in chapter 3, James It's almost like he he jumps into a totally unrelated discussion of the tongue. But context is always important for a correct interpretation. And what James has to say about the use and control of the tongue is in keeping with his theme and the central message of the book that genuine faith will manifest itself in good works, that what we do reveals who we are. But his point in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, is that just as good works, just as what we do reveals who we are, So too our words, what we say reveals who we are because ultimately our words come from our hearts. And if we've been born again, we've received a new heart. We have a changed heart. And so the words we say will reflect the reality of our new birth. They will manifest the fact that that we're a new creation in Christ. And so James wants us to know that the genuineness of a person's faith inevitably will be revealed by his speech because the tongue is the great revealer of the heart. 
In fact, nothing is more telling on the heart than the tongue. But the tongue is also the most difficult member of the body to control. Someone said because the tongue is in a wet place, it can easily slip. And slip it does. There's no easier way to sin than with your mouth. Because you can say anything you want. There are no restraints. And the tongue is one of the most common ways in which believers sin. And this is a great concern to James. And so in verse 1, James began his instruction in regard to the tongue with the warning that many of you should become teachers. He's warning, against, he's warning people against rushing into the ministry for the wrong reasons and motives. It's a warning that no one should presume to appoint themselves to the ministry, that, that no one should take up the task of teaching too casually. Why? Because he says that those who teach will be judged by God with greater strictness. Because greater authority and responsibility brings with it greater accountability. And then in verse 2, just in case anyone might be thinking, well, I don't have to pay any attention to this. This only applies to those who are in the ministry or those who aspire to ministry. And so just in case anyone was thinking that, James gave us a real dose of reality in verse 2. He said, for we all, that, that includes everybody, doesn't it? For we all, Every one of us stumble in many ways. That is, we, we sin in many, way, in many ways. And the present tense indicates repeated stumbling. And so James is saying we all use our tongues and we all sin many times and in many ways. We all find it so easy to offend with our tongues. And no right-minded, truthful Christian can possibly argue with that. And he says, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, that is, if anyone has managed to control his tongue completely, that man is perfect, able also to control his whole body perfectly as well. The only problem with that is no one, no one except our Lord Jesus Christ has ever done that. And our only hope as we seek to tame our tongues is that we are Christ's and that we are being made increasingly like him. But we have to guard our tongues. And the tongue is very small, but it's extremely powerful. And James wants to impress this fact on our minds so that we don't underestimate the effects that it can have. And so in verses 3 to 5, James used two analogies to show the disproportionate power of the tongue. He likened the tongue first to a bit in a horse's mouth, and secondly to the rudder on a large ship. And the point, obviously, is the extraordinary power and influence concentrated in such small objects. And after giving the illustrations, James says in verse 5, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is a small member. I mean, it's a very small part of the body, but James says it, it boasts of great things. It talks big. And then in verse 5 through 8, James used a series of graphic pictures to speak about the destructive power of the tongue. He likened the tongue to a small fire, a spark that can set an entire forest on fire. In verse 6, he said the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. In other words, the tongue is a fire that by implication is just out of control and it just destroys everything that is in its path. 
An unchecked tongue can assassinate a person's character, destroy a reputation, a relationship, and even a life. And yet we're so careless with our words. People think nothing of being busybodies, gossips, and slanderers. But all it takes are a few careless words to cause a raging inferno that cannot be extinguished. I mean, the whole world of unrighteousness will first be expressed on a person's lips, and then their hands and feet will soon follow them into that very sin. I mean, sinful, wicked words symbolized by the tongue stain the whole person. You know, the reputation, character, judgment, and behavior are all constantly stained by, by the flow of filth that comes from an unbridled tongue. And continuing his graphic description of the destructive power of the tongue, he says in chapter 3, verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. What's his point? Simply this, the wildest, smartest, fastest, biggest, most powerful, and most elusive animals have been tamed by man. But never, never has there been a man or a woman who could tame the tongue. I mean, it's like a a beast, a wild beast, and it's caged behind two sets of teeth for a reason. Right? Never has there been a man or a woman who could tame the tongue, and I say this on good authority. Look at verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And the untamable tongue is even more dangerous when we consider the deadly poison it can deliver. I mean, the tongue can be the most powerful, destructive member of the entire body. And then in verses 9 to 12, James dealt with the inconsistency of the tongue. An uh, inconsistency that, uh, sadly, he no doubt had observed among believers. He says in verse 9, with it, speaking of the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father. But with the same tongue, which we bless God, James continues, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. The word cursing is not limited in meaning to the literal calling down of curses on people or swearing at them. No, it, it takes in all the bitter, callous, unkind, critical, spiteful, angry, harsh words that we can sadly use about one another and our fellow man. That is the kind of inconsistency James is attacking. And so it is little wonder that he adds, look at verse 10, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. These things ought not to be so. The idea is that there should be no place in a Christian's life for this kind of duplicitous speech. It is not only inconsistent, it is a sin. And James closes this section on the tongue in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. He says, Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Well, the obvious answer is no, right? And the same spring doesn't give two extremely different kinds of water. Verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine, grapevine produce figs? Well, again, the obvious and expected answer is no. 
No such thing is possible. It's utterly contrary to nature and cannot happen. James then states, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I mean, this too is obviously impossible. And no rational person would think twice about believing anything to the contrary. And James' point is, whatever comes out of the mouth reveals what's on the inside. And our words matter more than we can possibly imagine because the genuineness of our faith inevitably will be revealed in the words that come out of our mouths because ultimately, as I stated earlier, they come from our hearts. In case you think James is way off, Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue reveals what's in the heart like nothing else can. Bitter words expose a heart that is bitter. Angry words, an angry heart. Boastful words, a proud heart. Deceitful words reveal a deceitful heart. Hateful words reveal a hateful heart. And conversely, a hateful heart cannot produce loving words. And an unrighteous heart cannot produce righteous words. As Jesus said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Then you will recognize them by their fruit. You will recognize them by the manner of their living, by their way of life. You will recognize them by their works. You will recognize them by the words they speak. I mean, James' point is clear. As Christians regenerated by God through his word, we should bear fruit in keeping with who we are in Jesus Christ. Because when God transformed us, he also gave us the capacity for new, redeemed, holy speech. And he expects us as his children to speak as God's children. Our words reveal the state of our hearts more than any other measure of spirituality. And James is saying that sinful speech patterns in professing Christians need to be taken as a serious sign of a need for grace. He is also saying that sinful speech patterns may well be an indicator that you need the grace of God for salvation. So the question is, what does your speech tell you about yourself? What does your speech indicate about the true spiritual state of your heart? James just doesn't give us any wiggle room. He just steps all over our toes. But that's good. We need it. We know that James really loved the people, those people and the people in his church. Why? Because he told them the truth. He wasn't willing to compromise. He wasn't worried about hurting someone's feelings. He didn't want to hurt their feelings uh, intentionally. But if their feelings were hurt by what he said, which is the truth of God's word, then they needed to deal with that. Because the question isn't what, what do you feel about it or how do you like it? The question is, is it truth? Is it a truth from God's word? And if it is, then we, we have to make the necessary adjustments. 
we have to submit our lives to the Word of God. So what does your speech tell you about yourself? And this brings us now to chapter 3, verses 13 to 18, where James will show us that just as a genuine faith manifests itself in good works, and that the words that come uh, manifest itself in good works and in the words that come from our mouths, he's going to show us now that genuine faith also manifests itself by the wisdom we possess. But that's for next week, Lord willing. Thank you for being patient. We got through this. I wasn't sure if we would, but we did. And I commend you. I, I true, honestly and truly do. I commend you. I mean, those of you who come week after week and sit here under the teaching of God's word, whether it's myself or a guest speaker, because what you're not going to find here is a 20-minute little homily, right? Uh, what one man called a sermonette for Christianettes. No, and I'm, I'm being very serious. I commend you. Because you don't realize the, the average sermon now across the United States, I think, is some around 25, 30 minutes. But you guys can take it. No, I'm serious. I, I mean that. That's a, that's, that's a compliment. I commend you. I mean, this is what we've done from, from day one. And you can take it, and I commend you for that. And I pray that God works all of these things in our hearts and lives. Let's stand and pray. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing.